it's often really quick and like, uh, you know, and just sort yeah. of like, a, uh, I guess, functional. Mm-hmm. And then in a different, more intimate setting, I don't even know how to describe it. It was almost like, uh, for like, and I remember like my body, like feeling it for like a good half an hour after being like, oh my God, it was sort of just all over bodily release. writer, author, screenwriter, actor, drag queen, their persona crystal. Whoa, what an exceptional voice. If you get the chance, YouTube, their rendition of Sears Chandelier, the falsetto cuts through you like a knife, puts the original to shame, I would say. Sorry about it, Sia. Sorry about many things at the moment, it seems. Um, Tom talks in this episode about their journey to drag, coming out at an early age, sex at an early age, And why their relationship with pleasure, which is really full and delicious. Some I find it a little intense. There are places we go in this podcast that we haven't been before. Speaking of which, if listening to people talk openly about gangbangs and group sex is going to be triggering for you, take care of yourself and sit this one out. The way Tom speaks about sex with such relish is completely linked to the way in which they approach living their politics every day in any way that they can. They are also savage on middle class and mediocrity, which puts me to shame because I would say I am mediocre at the moment. And actually, that's not entirely true. I've been recording an audiobook this week. I do them quite often. This one's a sci-fi, a fantasy. I really enjoy those. Maybe the most... Mm, I shouldn't say that. I've got that to be cast for all audiobooks. Any, any, any you are putting in the offing, I'll do. But I particularly enjoy these because in between the wars and the orcs, there's often a little bit slipped in about the meaning of life. So a character will be stuck down a ravine, say, and it seems like, well, yeah, death's the definite. And then they'll just go into a meditative space where they connect with the elemental web which runs through all things and somehow summon this power they didn't realise they had before which shoots them right up out of that mind shaft (laughs) to heroic glory. I love it. I love that sense that if you just listen intently enough and connect with that web you could potentially fly yourself right out of lockdown and straight over to New Zealand. Do you think they'd have a way of blocking that? Undoubtedly, yes. Particle or person, Arden will be on you. I also really enjoy these books because in general there are a huge range of characters and it's an invented world. So you get to pick the accents. I've made a bit of a booby with this one. I'm about 1,600 pages in and two of the main characters, one is Liverpudley and the other Welsh, they speak to each other on the regular. Every other page there's a dialogue. And at this stage in the novel, I'm not sure you can tell which one's which. Very close, those two accents. Very close, especially in this case. I should not say any more because I am uncertain about the crossover between Come As You Are podcast audience and the people who listen to those audiobooks but I guess we'll see from the numbers if uh, I ever get booked again for this ongoing series we'll find out that there actually is a huge correlation between those two groups orgasms and orcs who would have thought it Tom and I do get to speak about orgasms. It takes a little while. Hang in there. It all makes sense. I love the way this episode flows and everything coalesces on the flow factor. There's a little bit of distortion on Tom's line at points. We were doing this conversation over Zoom. So I apologise for that. You will get used to it and it 
effectively disappears about halfway through. As always, if you enjoy this episode and you like to fund the people who give you fun things, you can donate on co-fee.com forward slash Helen Duff for a one-off donation. Or to become a member, we're going to bung a bunch of extra audio from this conversation that we couldn't fit into the episode onto Patreon. And that is patreon.com forward slash Helen Duff if you want to access the stuff that we couldn't squeeze in here. Otherwise, strap in, strap on, and buckle up for the brilliant Tom Rasmussen. Tell me about where you grew up, because I watched your show that was at Soho Theatre as Crystal, obviously, your drag persona. Yeah, yeah, I I like Persona. Yeah, Yeah? I like Persona. You're amazing, amazing Crystal. And you talk in that, or you make reference at least a little bit to like growing up and the kind of iconic women you were surrounded by. Mm. So tell me about that. Yeah, I grew up just outside of a place called Lancaster uh, in the northwest of England. Sort of, I guess if you were to imagine the way that the media represents the north, it's kind of like that. Mm. Um, Sort of... (laughs) Uh, yeah, working class county, working class town, working class village. I don't know, it, it's weird. I've had a complicated relationship with the way I've described where I grew up because I think for a long time when I when I moved south, I was very much sort of trying to just slightly class assimilate maybe and be like, oh yeah, I grew up in Manchester because the first time I told someone I grew up in Lancaster, they were like, ah, I've never left zone two. And so I was like, okay, it's just going to be easier for me if I like slip and slide around people who like judge me when I say I've never had Oscar Wilde like why should I Mm. and so yeah where I grew up I think I've I've really reconnected with it a lot in recent years and reconnected with its value and been so frustrated I think by the view a the sort of media view of the north and the working classes and the sort of friend view of the north and the working classes that I have and no one's intentionally among my friends mean or shitty but it's this sort of constant perpetuated misunderstanding that it's grim up north it's grey up north that there's nothing there and actually something I've come to realise when I've been sat at like big middle class dinner parties with people's parents who are like so posh they like can you know barely like move is like there's actually so much more culture 100% jowl where I'm 100% yeah 100% sort of like rainbow trout and like you know and I I just I've realised there's so much more culture and warmth and like power Mm. Mm. where I grew up and so it's been a weirdly sort of yeah I, I, I sort of judge myself for what for how I how I was it was very classist of me but I was dealing with a lot of internalized classism and that's life really not really too dramatic as people have been through worse um but yeah now I would say it was an it's it's an amazing place. It's wonderful. Mm. Is it at uni that you started doing drag, or had you done drag, it before? Yeah. 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 Well, well, I'd done drag a lot alone, a lot in my bedroom, but there was no real space in Lancaster. And then, you know, for my sins, I went to Cambridge. And it's really funny because, again, there's weirdly like when I got in and I was in Lancaster, it was like everyone was like so proud. Mm. But I think like. I'd particularly gone from a really working class place to a place where there were no working class people. Mm. And so I'd begun to associate all the amazing things I was learning at uni, which was not really my veterinary medicine degree. It was more like, you know, to be myself, to be a drag queen, to to learn the importance of knowledge, to understand social structure. You know, I was so lucky and privileged to go to Cambridge. It was something that at home... 
me or my friends or my family were super proud of and then yeah. among the middle classes and online now it's sort of the shameful position to admit it's you've wild, been to though. somewhere like that and it, it is wild but I mean we should obviously be cognizant of our privilege or whatever but it's just so funny that like it's the classic middle class guilt thing and I'm quite like well fuck you then I don't know it's funny I really struggle with that because it's a bit like what happens there no one in my family had ever been to Oxbridge or knew anything about Cambridge I went and I applied yeah. we but we didn't cross over I didn't we yeah. met the whole college system for example I applied oh, what? So I just applied to the ones that didn't have either a saint or like a, a biblical direct yes. biblical reference that I recognized because I assumed that all the ones that were associated with the bible would be hard to get into because they were more like Religion. you know like I never I thought Christ and Jesus must be the best ones because yeah. <laughs> I really tragically really applied Catholic. to I applied to Queens because I was like I'm it's so basic. It assumes a lot of knowledge. What I found was, yeah, my family were massively proud and also really intimidated. So as soon as I got in, a lot of my relationships changed. I suddenly seemed much more intelligent than I had the day before. Do you know yeah, what I mean? And yeah. so that created a, like a division. And I think the opportunities I was getting education wise were yeah. so like much more specific. And that's why I think it's really that there's this shame and guilt associated with it mm. of going, of getting that privilege, because what it means is it never gets shared out. So that mm. style of education where it's like you get quite small groups and you get quite it's a really private school system to have really small classes mm-hmm. and to get really like individual attention and be able to like yeah. discuss stuff without any consequences yeah. just to just to chat and that's not being replicated at all no. in like the state system because there just isn't the funding for it no. and that's a consequence i think of it being really like hidden away in these institutions yeah no i agree completely it's so funny i remember being like absolutely baffled when i met like etonians i'd only have imagined eat i never read harry potter but i imagine eaton and also she's a turf but i imagine eaton is sort of like <laughs> a hogwartsy kind of place because i'd watch the films i remember meeting an etonian and then learning slowly over time that like there was like a thousand person theater there were like wine tasting classes it's something i i find it hard to talk about not because it's emotional because I get so consumed by rage about about class, which is why doing drag at Cambridge really fucked me up because actually, yeah, I don't know, it was a weird shift. My my parents were mad at me when I came out and then took a long time to get into it and now they're the best people ever. But I think the biggest fight we ever had was when I told them I was quitting veterinary medicine to, to be a drag queen and a writer because I didn't even know I wanted to write back then, but I think... For them, they were like, oh, my God, you are throwing away an opportunity that we we never had. You know, no one in my family had been to uni except my br- one brother older than me. And he went to the like local uni, which is a good uni. Lancaster Uni is a really good one. We were the first people in our whole family to go to uni. And um, it's not that I was the first intelligent person in my family who could get into uni. Mm. It was that my parents didn't have the opportunity to. And it wasn't the done thing necessarily to leave where you were from. And the problem, I think the problem that like conversation slightly perpetuates is that like people aren't clever enough. And that's not the point is that people don't have the opportunity to do so. And so I think for my parents, they were fuming because they'd worked so hard to allow me to self-actualize and do what Mm. I wanted to do, which was to become a vet. You know, and then when I change that, <laughs> they like, fucking throw this shit away. You know, it's just yeah. So do you mean you switched? Did you switch degrees during or when you'd finished the degree? You I did not two years of veterinary medicine, and then I switched degrees to 
philosophy of science, which was actually, it was, sounds quite useless, but it was the most incredible switch in sort of mind because you, I was reading Judith Butler and I was reading, I don't fucking know. Then what you're doing is you're learning about, which is like such another step. You're not just learning about the knowledge, you're learning about how the knowledge is made and who uh, gets to like disseminate the knowledge and decide yeah. where it's shared. And That is what blew yeah. my mind in my final year. That mm. I remember thinking, I remember like someone telling me about like a criticism paper in some course mm. and everyone was like oh my god the crit the crit paper the crit paper and we didn't have them in vet med it was just like learn these 1000 names and actions of drugs and then you're like okay i remember hearing about the criticism paper and having to ask my friend like what does that mean because until then i just thought criticism was like you know why is hannah wearing that dress <laughs> literally honest to god or like honest to fucking god i swear to my life I came out when I was super young, came out when I was like 13. And I think I did it to sort of, I don't know, well, I was out at a school. It was so evident from day dot that I was gay. And then it was really upon learning that gay was a a thing you could be Mm. that I realised that that's what I was. It wasn't me being like, am I gay, am I not? Never that, I knew. When you come out as gay at 13, and it's definitely a feeling, it's definitely something that you're like, no, this is it. And, mm. and like, saying it out loud to people is one thing, but, like, knowing it internally is, is mm. completely different. And then you start doing a degree later that's, like, about questioning structures and systems and the, and the way we, like, the language you were used to name things. Mm. Did that then feel like another kind of um, yeah. awakening in a way? Like, I think you... that's probably when I realised that I was queer. Oh, interesting. And then, and then probably led to me realising that I'm actually non-binary, I think. Mm. You know, and actually sort of I have these wild beliefs that everyone really is just we're, we're, we're repressed. You know, I don't want to, like, force everyone to be trans. Mm. Um, but sort of the, the binary structure is, it's obvious. It, any binary structure, um, cis or trans, whatever, they're all just, I guess, they're not, but they are. I don't know. We're responding to context and they're really important and these things have been built around us and we can't es- escape them. But at the same time, sort of in truly theoretical, ideological way, nothing exists. I'm just interested in whether you then questioning all those things and realising you're non-binary, trans, was was that ever seen as like, oh God, Tom's just an intellectual now. Mm. Tom's Tom's above us with all his theories of like nothing exists and fucking. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't. I I don't know. My parents are really smart people, and my family are. I think I had a phase in my life. I still am, but I had a phase in my life when I was very rapidly political and very, very, I guess you could say militant. Not to bring the language of police and the military into this conversation, but like I was very militant, and so I think that would often be quite alienating for my say like my older sister and brother who hadn't been to uni and who hadn't hadn't followed that sort of path for their life and I think they would be like it just gets a bit much and I used to get really upset by that and now I'm a bit like they obviously listen and they're really good people and they try mm. but like they have way harder lives than I do in other ways and so like you know my sister's got two kids to look after and she works full-time and her husband, her partner, not her husband, is away full time and is back like every eighth weekend or whatever because of the job he has to do in order to make enough money to survive. And like, why should my sister necessarily be as devoutly dedicated to the things that I am 
and she should care in the way that I care about her kids in the way that I care about her life she should care about what I care about and she should care about being a good person but I think sometimes actually it's not the most productive way to have a conversation at the moment it sounds like you just had realization after realization you were really sure at 13 at 20 you did this course and you were like oh okay that changes how I think about me was there ever any disparity between like what you were learning in your head or opposite what you were feeling in your heart and what you were able to kind of come to terms with though that's actually really interesting because a lot I don't know why I think because I've always thought I'm a bit thick because of like maybe where I come from and how I was schooled and how that's sort of how you know and I'm obviously not I know that objectively but Mm. what I feel is always like the most unclever person in a room and that's probably speaks to the rooms that I'm in and I need to change those fucking rooms but um (laughs) I think so for example I have just written a book about marriage and yeah that sounds fascinating I didn't know that no, and it asks this question that is in my absolute, it feels almost wired into my DNA because of how I grew up. I grew up Catholic. I grew up in a family that was centered on marriage. I grew up in wider families that were centered on marriage in a community that adored marriage, that sees it as the probably one of the most important life events you can possibly have. Mm. And I dreamed of it, dreamed of it. In my early 20s, I thought it sort of realized that marriage was sort of arguably an oppressive structure and what does a relationship have to do with the state and now I'm sort of nearing 30 with a long-term partner who I love so much and I have these weird feelings of like deep emotional want for something like that like marriage but then I have an intellectual sort of ideology that says that that is bad that is anti-queer that Mm. is sort of like pro-structure it's kind of right-wing I think as an organizing tool Mm. um, because it removes power from the people and I think the question of this book which is the questions I'm asking myself a lot having been probably pretty unwoke not that I was ever horrible but like being pretty unwoke growing up to then like being basically pretty bitchy because I that was my survival mechanism to then like going all the other way and being like super woke and now interrogating all the gray areas in between those things. I'm now a bit like, how do I move forward if my heart, which is such a cringe way to say it, but if my heart says one thing and my head really believes another. Mm. And I think now when living our politics is the most important thing one of the most not the most but one of the most important things you can do if you're privileged like me to now live a fairly middle class life you know how do you how do you marry the two and that's what this book is asking and the answer i got to is like i don't fucking know it's not me not we must be the situation but it all down to the ground let's start again so we talked about so many things that have changed in your life, like in terms of where you grew up to then going to uni, then becoming part of a drag group, yeah. to then becoming a solo performer, yeah. to then becoming a writer. How those transitions impacted you sexually? Because I can imagine they're all quite big confidence tricks. And mm, I wondered whether that was reflected in what you were experiencing, yeah, in like relationships intimately. Well, I mean, really, I guess I would have to sort of gently, gently and speedily chart my my sexual history because <laughs> it's it's changed so much. The thing that is is only starting to change now. I'm arriving, hopefully, more at I don't know some self knowledge about who I am. I think I'm starting to get over this feeling of undesirability because you know I was like gay, poor, fat, spotty, ginger, 
and bullied really badly and also really iconic I was really I was I'm gonna give myself that at school I was like I was funny and and kind of became quite popular because I could hold my own against like people who would like spit at me and throw rocks at me Mm. and so it was this oddly sort of quite joyful repartee we'd have where someone would hock up a big logie on my face then I'd say something way wittier and then everyone would laugh and Mm. it weirdly became quite a good it became quite a good survival mechanism not that I'd recommend anyone have to go through any of that but um I think the thing that I felt a lot through all of my sexual sort of forays and I've had a lot that I was always the undesirable one and now I think being in a long-term relationship where we're really negotiating constantly you have to negotiate what sex the role sex plays in that I think now I'm coming to terms with the fact that I'm actually quite desirable on my own terms but I think that's only as you start to accept things about yourself. I'm interested in as the young person who's like using humour and wit and like an acerbic capacity to come up with comebacks really quickly Mm. Did that mean that sexually you also, or at least when you were engaging with partners, you had to be kind of the one who was funny and fast? Because and, having sex with somebody can be quite vulnerable. So it's quite I mean, hard to go into a vulnerable place if you're like being... No, I, not really. I mean, I, it was the classic old school gay way. I met people online. I met people sort of kind of cruising. Mm. And I always had sex with people at least twice my age because they were the kind of people who you would find. One time I had sex with someone quadruple my age, who's now dead of old age. Um, iconic. Mm. And I, <laughs> and you know what? And I'm not going to say I regret it because I actually had a fucking fabu time and I was sort of... I don't know, it helped me a lot, but I had really outrageous sex, really outrageous sex with a lot of different men. Mm. And then I would, instead of like, keep that secret, I would tell everyone. And Mm. I would like say the most outrageous thing I'd done that week. I sort of had this sort of metric in my head that was like, this is me dealing with my shame, which in a way it was a journey to dealing with a lot of gay shame that I had. Mm. You know, by being iconic, unapologetic, honest, but I think I'm less there now, which is nice. I think just because in my first book, I wrote all those stories down. And I weirdly, it's such a trash cliche when you're like, I've let those stories go. But I have actually, yeah. if I'm honest, I'm doing this TED talk in a few weeks and I don't want to trash. They're, they're, it's an amazing team that I'm working with on it. But it's about shame and kind of about sex. Recently, I was like, this is the last time I think I'm going to make work about shame because mm. I I've been doing it for arguably 20 years now and I'm 29 I've probably been making some sort of work about shame for about (laughs) 20 years and I'm kind of in the place where I'm a bit like I want to like talk about heterosexuals I want to like I want to give my opinion on other people rather than have to give my justification for my existence or my justification for my like brilliant overcoming story of all these hard things sex for me was actually always quite a magical place I think there was times in my life definitely when I was young I used to love getting picked up in an Asda delivery truck, being shut in the back, being taken to some country road and being like rammed really hard by some like 61 year old man who, and it was a lot, I had did a lot of like BDSM, but probably like not well practiced, sort of seeking out sex where I could really have the shame elevated and really have it like laid to bear during sex. And then I had a moment where I'd sort of had this realization that I was seeking out quite harmful Hmm. I wasn't being healthy feel free to correct me if I'm completely getting this wrong that you were sort of really enjoying the outrageousness of your own 
life both like and I say outrageousness in the sense that mm. when you were sharing with other people you were kind of conscious of how mm. of choosing the most scandalous and most juicy details that would like yeah. cause a scene and, and yeah. be attention grabbing and be exciting as well like having watched your shows and knowing as your person uh, you're an exciting performer to watch because you have a really keen eye for like what's going to turn people on in terms of a story like the details so I can see that being satisfying to, to play that role to play that mm. like almost like jester role, but using your own life experience mm, as the mm. material. So I can imagine mm. there is a kind of addictive quality to thinking, okay, I've got a story like that. I need, I need new, almost like, oh, almost yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. weirdly yeah. being your own um, content. like Creator. No, but you're both the creator and you're the forum. So you're going like, mm, we've had that. We need this now. You're like, the, you're like a black mirror mm. where it's mm. like, You've become your own moderator who's going like, come on, what's the next thing? What's the next big thing? How can we push it? You hit a wall with that, surely, because suddenly, yeah, suddenly you're like, I think I'm endangering myself, actually, and I need to stop. I, well, that's it. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head better than I can, which is like, that was it. I was like, oh, you're seeking out these experiences to tell a story and you're not doing them yeah. because it's what you actually want. Um, and so... Yeah, basically, exactly that, exactly. I would never, it was never as sort of calculated as being like, okay, you know, we've <laughs> we've done fisting, now it's time to do like drinking from a toilet. There was no um, list that you were ticking off, yeah. But it was very much like I would be, I'd be thrilled if something new happened mm. and I could be like, guys, guys. <laughs> In the beginning of my new book, I talk about the acquisition of queer capital mm. Um and it's sort of, I'm, it's set at my brother's wedding, which is sort of, sort of very class conscious wedding. Um, I mean, it was this big wedding and he's earned a lot of money and they spent a lot of money. And I was like judging him for that in this book. And then I'm a bit like, I guess it's sort of similar to me acquiring queer, queer capital, which is like, Tom has the most iconic, most queer sex stories. And then like being desperate to keep acquiring that. Mm. There's a commodification of queer culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is, I guess this is, that is yeah, that's over. right. Well, more like this is particularly, there wasn't necessarily a commodification. I guess there was among my queerest friends. You know, mm. everything's a commodity. So my sex stories became that. But it wasn't sort of the commercialization of queerness in the way we see it at, mm. at like Pride, where it's like, you know, the army is marching. And you're quite like, girl, like, come on. Like. Mm. And I know, yeah, you can have gay soldiers and that's fabu, but the military is trash and war is trash and war harms LGBT people. And so it's sort of, it's it's, uh, it's also complicated, but it's the first time I'd ever sort of put it like that, that it was like, I was acquiring queer capital and it made me feel good. I, it, it feels like it's more about more for me now and less mm. for like telling of the story. And so, I don't know, I... God, I'm, it's, I feel so bored. I guess what's interesting is now I feel quite boring these days because I don't feel the need anymore. And that's by because in my career and in my relationships, I've been sort of empowered in, in the knowledge that what I have to say about things is worth saying. Not always, obviously, because sometimes we all need to shut the fuck up and listen. But, like, I think I now don't feel like my value in a room is, like, how outrageous a story can yeah. you tell and when that changed you know not on a huge scale but I think a few friends of mine were a bit like ooh this is new and it's not that I ever made a one day active decision to be like I'm never 
talking about sex. I can't stand prudish people. I can't stand it. It's my peeve. I can't stand people like, oh, I don't talk about sex. And I get if you don't talk about sex for certain reasons about triggering or safety, but if you're just someone who like is prudish, shut up. God, grow up. Oh, I can't. And you want me to... With my elbow. Okay. If you're having kind of outrageous experiences, is it harder to get off on stuff that is more tender and like, what's the word? I know what you mean, intimate or whatever. Or like boring. Present, present. Yeah. Yeah, boring. Um, no, because I guess when I first started to have that kind of sex uh, with my first long-term partner, it was that was a novelty. So I, would, I don't know, I've always... I don't know what it is, really. I've, I've, I've been lucky in that I've managed to, I don't know how, but somewhat dodge a complicated relationship with sex. I think all my experiences would point to maybe having that. Mm. And I think sir, they are. it's complicated in, in the ways that I've retold it. It's complicated in the ways that I felt about it. It's complicated in the choices that I've made. But it's never been complicated down in the dirty. Part of me, when I've thought about this before, thinks sometimes it's because... And I don't feel this anymore. And that was that's a self-esteem issue. I always felt quite lucky to be there. And like, oh, someone's desiring me. And I'm desiring them. Mm. But also, I guess one thing that is true is that for the first sort of maybe 10 years of sexual activity, and I started being sexually active. I don't know if this is the if this is problematic to say, but when I was like 14. But um, I think for the first maybe 10, not 10, maybe the first seven years, I very much was like, I'm there to pleasure the other person. So that's maybe a thing. Mm -hmm. And I would really find a lot of pleasure in that. And I still do a Mm. lot of pleasure. But now I've definitely stepped more into being like, I also deserve to be very much pleasured. And Mm. I deserve that. So I think what's interesting is, you know, I'm someone who's really, obviously, as we all should be, very, very much cognizant and always thoughtful about consent as we all should be but I think the way I learned a lot of my boundaries with consent was by having them breached and I don't mean in a way where I was saying no I mean in a way of being like oh I'll try that and then being like leaving the situation being like I really didn't like that Mm. and so it becomes I tried I've tried basically basically everything except blood letting insects right. uh, and sounding i haven't done sounding which what is, is like, sounding it's where you put sort of metal rods down the urethra i haven't right. done that but basically everything else i've tried but i had a friend an older gay friend in new york who was like a sounding expert and i used to think it was impossibly chic that he sort of would wear head to toe rick owens and talk you know talk about the the cues of men who come to him to be sounded and he's the expert and I would find it is there really an electrical cheap. pulse is there an no. electrical pulse okay I mean maybe there is but it's just these it's just these sort of very smooth metal or rubber rods that you put down and apparently if you get it right you can make someone piss and come at the same time and apparently it feels incredible oh my god um, I know isn't it iconic I think and I I'm I think... just really struggling like physically physically to understand how if there's something in how anything comes out. Well, you, Am I being rele- you release it. Okay. So it's almost like you plug it up and then... Mm. But I, I, I guess I've always found that quite nice because maybe I guess, like, years ago, I wrote an article for Vice about fisting mm. and I interviewed all these, you know, people, these gay men who were committed fisters in the fisting community. And I remember I, I had sort of certain judgments about it because we all do. I had, And not that I was like, Egh! but I had certain just internal judgments about it. And I interviewed them and it was the most wonderful thing mm. where a lot of these men were saying that 
they it's the the place in the gay community they felt most cared for they felt most thought of they felt felt most catered to and i was like isn't that special isn't it so nice that even if it's not for me there is somewhere obviously there's things that are not okay and that come that's about consent but when that there are places where two or ten or a hundred consenting people can meet do something that is so out of my remit and out of my thought process and they can find a place where they're like nurtured and uplifted in that desire all and I just found that I find that quite nice I find Mm. that quite quite comforting as an idea I think it's really wonderful I'm quite like yes you go get fisted you enjoy that (laughs) can you describe for me uh what it feels like to orgasm you can be as specific as you like or as abstract as you like you know what it depends if it's me masturbating then I guess it varies. It's often really quick and like, uh, you know, and just sort yeah. of like, um, uh, and I'm um, just sort of like, <laughs> I guess, functional. Mm-hmm. And then if it's like in a different, more intimate setting or not, I'm not synonymizing intimacy with sort of like tenderness always. Mm. If someone else is making me orgasm, it often is really like bodily, all over sort of bodily because sort of you're relinquishing a certain control Mm -hmm. or trust and you're relinquishing a certain self-control and knowing and trusting that someone's there and it's kind of incredible actually, that is, makes me smile, I'm smiling right now thinking about it then (laughs) I remember the one particular orgasm I had where I had taken a lot of drugs, I was in Berghain in Berlin and I think I'd had sex with 13 people and I hadn't I hadn't climaxed yet and then at the very end of the night in a toilet cubicle I was with someone and I climaxed and that was like it was like I don't even know how to describe it it was almost like for like and I remember like my body like feeling it for like a good half an hour after being like oh my god it was sort of just all over body release bodily release and like a tingling I, it's not as hard to describe it as physical, I guess, because tingling is just tingling. Yeah, it makes it it's sound just like sort of a, which is not. Yeah, it's a sort of all over bodily, like, I guess, like, release of tension mm. and sort of like a wash of allowing someone, other people. I don't know, it's kind of, I was like, God, what a collective collectively achieved orgasm that was. I don't know. It takes a village. It takes 14 yes. people in Bergheim. Yes, it does. I, feel je- I do feel jealous in a nice way of, you know, a lot of my female friends who have different orgasms because, mm. like, I have a housemate who will sometimes take a day off and spend the whole day masturbating and will be, like, come out of her room, like, oh, I just had nine. And I'm like, that is incredible. Yeah. And I'm jealous. And each one um, will be slightly different. I think yeah. I've come to really love the fact that I can have like external and internal ones and that mm. you can you can tell the difference between them and that they impact you differently. Sometimes I've had ones that actually I get angry after. Mm, like I, I think that. maybe I'm in the wrong place. And so like that much release and that much kind of that different kind of energy going through me afterwards, I'll just get really grotty. I'll just yeah, get really grumpy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll be super pissed off and I'll have to have a hot chocolate. Yeah. yeah. Um, get out. Don't want to be touched anymore. I remember being sat with my sister and her girlfriends and I'm 10 years younger than my sister and I remember one of them saying that like coming to this drinks and this was like maybe three years ago being like, mm. 
guys, I've just had my first orgasm. And they were like, what? <laughs> and she was like, for years, I thought I'd been orgasming. And then I just had the first one. And oh, my holy fucking God. Now I know what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, Obviously. it is like that. It is like that. And you almost feel bad for dismissing like your experiences before because there's some sort of pride isn't there in making yourself come and masturbating and like especially I think for women women are really encouraged to self-pleasure and which is great and so then saying like oh I had an orgasm through penetration or with a partner makes it sound like you're saying oh orgasms on your own aren't as real but there is a difference I think and it's probably to do with that giving up of control and that feeling of like you've trusted somebody else enough to actually like sort you out it is a deeply deeply intimate act even though i've done it with people who i couldn't tell you their names or their faces sometimes i find that actually hysterical i'm like i'm looking at you or i'm passing you in the street we're both cocking each other and like we're not even saying hello to each other or acknowledging it and you have like you've like come in me mm. that's crap that's iconic i find that really iconic i'm quite like you have like come inside me and we're not even going to say hello and I don't yeah. know your name and I find it really and so, and I sometimes when I imagine like the it's that tra- it's that a scene in Amelie which is so trash to bring up but well, you know where she looks out over Paris and she looks at sees all the orgasms happening mm. there's a place in Soho opposite the photographer's gallery which is this sort gay sauna called Sweatbox which is where it's a gay sauna and I've had quite a few orgasms there and there's a lot of gay saunas around London which are really hidden that I've had group sex in and orgasms in and often I'll be walking and they'll be like me and then like a family and then like someone walking their dog and then like whatever in like very sort of middle class and I'll be like right below where we are all stood right now mm. I have been like gangbanged by like eight men do you know what I mean it's sort of kind of I, I love the idea of the geography of orgasms I think it's really fun do you know yeah. what I mean hmm. Does that also fuck you up? Does it fuck you up thinking like about the layers of pretense that are going on in our world? Like like a double thing of like delighted, delighted by everything that's sort of underground and secret and like gets to happen. But also like fuck you that people pretend it's not happening or have no awareness of like a whole Well, I guess I feel quite protective of that world actually Mm. because I wouldn't want it to be... You know, because it, it, it's definitely been necessary for queer people to mm. build spaces where they can find, like, alternative modes of touch if you, like, can't hold hands in the street. If you're not, if, like, someone's going to co- look at me, stare at me for holding hands in the street, then I'm not going to let them into, like, my orgasm space or whatever. Mm. But I feel quite protect. I don't know, I find it quite funny. I actually just find it quite funny. Great. And I think what me- I since getting a dog, she's actually a boy, and she's, like, very very well she's biologically a boy where that means she has balls and she is fab and i took her with a friend of mine who's very very smart and very very um what's the word very brilliant observer and we went to clapham common like before christmas and went on dog walk and took the dog to that part where all the big dogs play and they there was like literally 30 dogs 30 families me and my friend and it was this really middle class really clappamy scenario where everyone was like Ottilie Ottilie and I was like fighting it fucking jokes and all of these dogs fuck each other they try and fuck each other they don't they're not often successful they all just fuck and like bite and roll around and like bash into each other and my friend it really made me smile my friend was like 
it's so funny how family life is you like you have kids and then you go and watch your dogs fuck at the weekend and i just found it so funny and and then i would be like oh 69ing to like you know some like posh mom and they'd get really like uppity and i'd be like girl come on like what what it is it is come on god people are wild but like um yeah i don't know it's i find it i do find it funny i think i do i do i think it's boring I do think <laughs> I think society is really boring. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's so dull. Oh, my God, it's just especially middle class society. I'm really learning. It's like as aspiration to absolute mediocrity. So that was Tom. What did I tell you? Savage about middle class mediocrity. Taking it down, one British bulldog mounting a shih tzu at a time. Step away from the blueberry ricotta pancakes, people. It's time to sort out the school system. I really enjoyed this episode. As we discussed, Tom has a new book coming out. I'm going to drop links to that and their last book, Diary of a Drag Queen, which was fantastic in the episode notes, along with, obviously, all of our Kofi and Patreon details. Plus, if you can, the recording of their live show from the Soho Theatre run. It was such a brilliant performance. In their persona is Crystal. It was called Crystal Rasmussen Presents the Bible 2, brackets, plus a cure for shame, violence, betrayal, and athlete's foot. If you can get away to watch it online, it will really bring some light to your lockdown. This episode was edited by Daisy Grant, and Come As You Are, the podcast is produced by me, Helen Duff, Lorna Treen, and Daisy Grant. Hit us up if you want to employ brilliant women to create top quality audio content if you can't subscribe to our patreon or support us on ko-fi that's cool this is a difficult moment please send the podcast to someone you think will love it and write us a review on itunes or wherever you listen we will be back next week with another banger as per until then look after your earlobes as well as everything else and enjoy yourself 